And as I already been mentioned, thanks for being here, you know, on this crazy morning. Those of you who are watching online totally understand there's specific places you can't even get out. I know that I backed out of my car, out of my driveway, and uh, I pushed on my brakes and I went all the way down. And it was uh, kind of a fun experience, but not so. And so I totally understand, you know, while some of you are at home, but thanks for being here today because I hope that you're expecting uh, to hear something that I believe that God has to speak to you. Uh, he is speaking, and uh, I hope that you've learned some things about him and some background has been helpful as we're in uh, week three of this series called Dear Church, where we're looking at the seven churches in Revelation and what Jesus has to say to all the churches and not just these seven churches, as you'll see. Now, on the screen, you can see the seven churches that we're looking at You know, is modern-day Turkey. And you can even visit that today. And I went uh, just a couple years ago and was able to walk into those places and see it firsthand. In fact, if some of you have told me, you love the background information, you love the history, you, know, you love just uh, that, that insight, uh, um, I've gotten it from other people. It's not like I've come up with this. And so here's a site if you're interested, and it's called Walking the Text. Uh, these are the guys who led me on uh, the trip that I went on. And so it's got great information, great background, great understanding if this is kind of your cup of tea. Also, uh, one of the guys from Walking the Text is named Brad Nelson. Brad will be here next week to speak. Now, Brad spoke uh, before Easter of this last year, and he is in charge of leading our Israel trip that was planned for this year, but obviously we're not going to Israel, and I hope that you're praying with me for what's taking place in Israel this year as we're targeting now 2025. So he'll be here this next weekend to go to our next city as we look at Thyatira next week. Now, last week, we looked at the church in Ephesus, and we talked about remembering the works, the habits that we do in our love for God and for others while still holding to his word. This week, we're gonna look at two cities and two churches. And just like the last few weeks, I'm gonna ask you to think as I'm gonna teach you for a few minutes and then we'll finish with a little bit of preaching time. And so I just wanna need you to kind of stay involved as I hope this background is helpful and informative for your walk with Christ. In Revelation 2.8, it says these words, write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna, you know, is a harbor city. And what made it so powerful is it had two harbors, one on each side of it. So it was very economically wealthy. One of its largest imports is actually where it got its name, Smyrna, and that is myrrh. Many of you remember the wise men brought myrrh along with some other things to Jesus at the birth of Christ. And myrrh is predominantly prepared for that day and age to prepare dead bodies you know, for decaying and their memorial services. So Smyrna was infatuated with death. More than most places in Rome, Smyrna talked at length about death and resurrection. And so it's interesting how Jesus always addresses the churches based on what those churches would understand about their culture. So notice how Jesus addresses the church in Smyrna with just that little bit of background. He says, this is the message from the one who is the first and last who is dead, but is now alive. And so he intentionally is speaking to this church and to the community at large. This is probably about over 200,000 people that made up that city. Now, Smyrna was also called the crown city or the crown of Asia because it was surrounded by hills that resembled a crown. Uh, speaking of which, they would also have major athletic games also in Smyrna, and they would always give crowns uh, to those who were the victors. Now, a complete side note, but I think it's pretty interesting. Smyrna is the known birthplace and home city for a guy that you may have heard of named Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. So once again, real place in history, geography proven by archaeology. 
Now, this is what Jesus says as he observes this church. This is what he says to the followers of Christ there. I know about your suffering and your poverty. Now, we're not talking about people who have just a little bit less than others. We're talking about extreme poverty. Now, Smyrna, the reason was, Smyrna was the leading city in the Roman cult of emperor worship. You might remember the last couple of weeks, I showed you that during this time frame, the Roman emperor Domitian was on the, on the throne and he was the first to demand worship of the Caesars while the Caesars were still alive as a way to show political alliance and to come under his authority. So once a year, the Roman citizens must burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar in Smyrna is one of those places. And then when they did so, they would receive a certificate to guarantee they had performed their religious duty. All that to say, guess who decided not to do that? The Christians. But when Christian says, we're not gonna proclaim Caesar as Lord, that only Jesus is Lord, they got ostracized, they got branded this cult, and they got excommunicated in such a way that they could not even make a living in most cases, which is what caused them to suffer extreme poverty and suffering. It's something like we don't even understand and this, this perspective, which we'll get to in just a second. But Jesus' perspective is different. And he wants to remind them that yes, you're going through suffering. Yes, you're going through extreme poverty, but you are rich. You are rich according to Jesus's eyes for what is yet to come and what you're actually standing up for for all eternity. You will be rich one day. I know the pain, the suffering, the difficulty, but even though you're poor in your own eyes, there is a different perspective in mine. And I want you to know that you are rich. Then he says, I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they're Jews, but they're not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you in prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. So what Jesus is saying is it's bad, extreme poverty and suffering, and it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. Now, some theologians have looked at this, said, does 10 days actually mean 10 days, or is it 10 months, or is it the 10 Roman Empire? We don't exactly know. We just know there's going to be a short term of major suffering on top of the already major suffering that they're going through. Then he says this, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Remember what Smyrna was known for, the crown of Asia. And again, Jesus is speaking to what they would know, which reminds me of James chapter one, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so in persecution, there's also reward if we can have a different perspective than what we're actually going through that actually helps us through the suffering and persecution. In fact, there's a famous story that's not too much later in that region with a, with a, by a pastor by the name of Polycarp. And you can research this online. The reason he isn't famous is that he was actually a disciple of the apostle John. 
So John had disciples, John who wrote Revelation, John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in our Bibles. He had disciples and Polycarp was one of those. And he served in Smyrna until AD 155 when he died heroically as a martyr. He was one of the first known martyrs in that city. He's arrested and he's hauled into the stadium in front of thousands and he's asked to recant his faith in Jesus under the threat of being burned at the stake. Now, at the moment they asked him to be able to recant, he says these famous words that will be written down for all time. For 86 years, I have served him and he has never let me down. How can I forsake my king and my savior? And so they lit the flame to burn him at the stake. And right as they were lighting the flame, the winds shifted and the flames were not able to burn him. So they ordered a Roman soldier to actually kill him with the sword. Now, why would God allow somebody like that to happen? Why would he allow a person who's done nothing but follow him to him to go through that kind of torture, that kind of persecution, that kind of martyrdom? Because shortly after that happened and because of that event, a revival broke out in Smyrna. They said, of all the gods that we serve, all the gods that we're aware of, what this man stands for is real, and we're going to put our faith and trust in it. And so goes the blood of martyrs. So much more often when people live their lives for Christ, we actually see the opposite of what society or the devil intends, which is to smush the light of Christ. It actually explodes the light of Christ in those regions. And then Jesus finishes with this. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the church and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. And you might say, second death? What is the second death? See, when we die, everyone is gonna die and have a first death. But the Bible talks about a second death that actually takes place on judgment day. In fact, in Revelation 20, a few chapters later, it says this. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead and the death and the grave gave up their dead and all who were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is the judgment day. You know, when actually all people get gathered before the throne and then there's going to be a second death where those will be gone forever and those who follow Jesus will reign with him forever. And this is what Jesus is promising to that church of those who stand strong even unto death in Smyrna. And so as we look at this, Let's take a look now at the second city. So with that in your background, that's Smyrna. Now let's look at the second church. It says, write this letter now to the angel of the church in Pergamum. So here's Pergamum. This was a vast city, you know, on the mountain and it was, it was a place of power. Think Washington, D.C. of its day, politically especially. Now you can see it's absolutely beautiful as it's on this hillside. And if you go today, I think we have this next picture. I took this picture just from the side. And that uh, stadium, you know, and this is from a far distance, actually can hold 20,000 people just on that hillside. 
So just so just, you know the vastness you know, of that stadium. Now, being the uh, provincial capital and the home to Roman governors, many Roman governors, they would hold what's called ceremonial swords. Uh, you and I would probably associate them with the Roman sword you know, that they would carry, and this would be an example. But the idea of the governor walking around the city with a sword is indicating to people, in my hands, I hold the power of life and death. I hold the power over the city to punish those who refuse to worship the emperor or abide by the emperor's will. So how does Jesus then introduce himself to the city and the church specifically in Pergamum? Notice what he says now. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. So it's fascinating that Jesus once again knows what they're about. And he says, let me remind you, I'm the one with all authority, not these governors. I'm the one with life and death. In fact, it reminds me of Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The power of God's word, Jesus himself. Jesus goes on to say, I know that you live in the city where Satan has its throne. And you're like, well, what could that mean? We don't exactly know, but we do know that in Pergamum, it had a special altar dedicated to the Greek god Zeus, which resembled a throne. And you can see that this is the ancient picture and it would have been the background. And this is actually in a museum today that you can actually go in and see how it's laid out in terms of the worship of Zeus. Now, both Zeus and Eclipius were worshiped in Pergamum and associated with the symbol of a snake, which is also the key symbol of Satan throughout scripture. And you can see that picture here. So then Jesus says in verse 13, Yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred amongst you there in Satan's city. So one thing we don't know is we don't know anything about Antipas. He was it's the only time he's mentioned in all the Bible. And even in outside history records, there's just some speculation. But what we can gather is if it's the same time around Polycarp, that there's a persecution that's happening. And he was killed in some way, shape, or form because he followed Jesus. And everybody in that city would have known him, which is why Jesus mentions him and for us to remember what people were willing to do for him. And so just stop for a second. Is it just me? Are these followers of Jesus hard to relate to? Or when they're facing extreme poverty, suffering, martyrdom, we're only reading about. It still happens, folks. It still happens today in parts of the Middle East and places in China and different parts of Africa that there are still people being brutally ostracized, extreme poverty, and yes, they are martyred simply for following Jesus. And I have to sit back in awe and also in a little bit of, I don't even know what to call it, uncomfortableness, because I complain about the weather indoors. Like, is it, is it warm enough in here? You know, is it cold enough? Or are we okay based on the sound and the light? Are the seats comfortable? Do we have, do we have our coffee? Because I know if we ever shut down the coffee shop, oh my gosh, the revolt that would take place and I would be the first one to lead it. I mean, what's wrong with us when it comes to this? We can get a little too comfortable. But those days, even in America, may be winding down. And so there are things that we need to learn from people who've gone before us they may apply to us, maybe a little bit different now, but could be more the same in the, day, in the days, weeks, months, or even decades ahead. 
But this is what he said. I'm thinking, if you're one of these Christians, right, in Smyrna, but especially in Pergamum, you'd think Jesus would be like, I got nothing but good things for you. You're willing to give your life for me. And yet, he does have something for the people in Pergamum, the, the, the Christians as well. He says, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. So I got to back up a little bit because some of the people were following the example of Balaam. And you got to go back to Numbers chapters 22 to 25 to know the Old Testament story that he's referring to. So let me just give you just a brief synopsis. Moses is taking the people of Israel from Egypt to the promised land. And uh, Balaam uh, has been uh, uh, contracted out by the King Balak of the Midianites to curse the nation of Israel. And he was willing to pay him. And, Bala and Balaam says, no, I can't do that unless God tells me. So he goes to God and God actually tells him to bless the nation of Israel instead of curse them, which may, makes you know, Balak really, really angry. And he says, I'll pay you even more. And so uh, also there's a, it's a talking donkey in the story. It's kind of cool. Uh, you can actually read about that. You know, or you can read the King James Version and uh, understand the donkey is a different three-letter word, which we won't say from the stage today. But uh, Anyway, uh, unfortunately, uh, through the course of this, they realize, Balaam tells Balak, if you want to get the nation of Israel, just have them intermarry your daughters. And watch, when they marry your daughters, the Midianites, they will begin to follow the Midianites' gods. And that's exactly what they did. And so what's taking place in this city, in this church, is this is what's happening in fact, we already know in 2 Corinthians 6.14, God tells us, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. In other words, don't marry someone if you're a committed believer and somebody is not. Because when you yoke something, you have two oxen together and yoke together, it doesn't, it doesn't plow straight. It goes left and right. And so he says, watch our hearts. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, it says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. An idol is anything more important in our life than God. And then he goes on to say, in the similar way, you have the Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Now, again, these were a group of people who came into the church and took Paul's words and would twist them or change them or add to them and gave them permission to eat food sacrificed to idols. That's what the Nicolaitans do. So they're faithfully as a church, as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, they are faithful people and uh, they're standing up against Roman authorities. They're being willing to even sacrifice their own selves to the point of death. And yet they're having a hard time confronting one another in the church. You see, sometimes it's easier to face an enemy out there than face a family or friend in the faith who is wrong in here. And this is what they're finding. They're willing to even die for their faith, but they're having a hard time holding one another accountable to actually what God has to say. And I wonder, how does all of this apply to us? Okay, preaching time. What holds us back from following Jesus or staying faithful to Jesus? To the Christians in Smyrna, it was one word, fear. Fear is what would hold them back, which is why Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. Now, do not be afraid shows up more than a hundred times in our Bibles. 
First, it's used when people are frightened, literally, when angels show up, but that's not what he means here. It's more like when God talks to Joshua and he's heading to the promised land and tells them, be strong and courageous, do not fear. In other words, you're having feelings of fear, but don't allow the fear to stop you from moving forward. Don't let the fear stop or hinder you from following me. See, we become paralyzed by fear. It's not that we're going to eradicate fear from our lives. Is what are we allowing fear to stop us from being or doing? See, many of us can fear rejection, so we don't want to have the conversation with those that we love, even if we know that it's the right decision and the right conversation because we know it's going to be painful. You see, courage is not the absence of fear. It's moving forward in the midst of fear. In order to work through fear, we have to have the courage. And to get the courage, we have to have something in our lives that's stronger than the fear in which we're facing. And that strength comes from Jesus. And as we keep focused and anchored in him, he gives us the strength to persevere in and through our fear. So here's my personal question for you. What fears are holding you back from faith? Or for those of you who have faith, from a deeper one. What fears are holding you back. It's okay to have fears. It's okay to experience fear, but what's actually holding you back? For example, I want to be honest with you. One of my fears that can rear its head from time to time is the fear of insignificance. That does my life actually matter? And it just comes up from time to time. Like uh, when I, I went through some health issues last year and I was in a hospital, that fear kind of came back again just to be like, okay, if I didn't have the title of pastor, how much of my life would mean anything to anyone else? And if you start living that way, here's the problem, is that I can compromise my faith because then I'd start relying on myself and I like to control things or people in my life instead of relying on the God who's in control of it all. That's me. What about you? What are you afraid of? Maybe for some of you, it's rejection of family members, friends, or coworkers if you're actually to stand up for what was right. Uh, maybe for some of you, that's fear of trust in Jesus more than trusting in your resource, resources, your finances. I mean, let's be honest. You know he's calling you to trust in him more than your resources, but you just can't or you won't let go of that control. Maybe for some of you, fear is you know, trusting God for the right man or woman in your life instead of moving ahead and settling for whatever is right in front of you. Maybe some of you are afraid of entrusting your kids to God to actually give them back to him because the very gifts of God can become the idols that replace him. In our lives. Uh, maybe it's fear of less or afraid of loss that we've given so much. We're afraid of losing the relationship, losing the job, losing our health. And so we look to other things like the government to actually protect us and to do what we think that they should do. Maybe some of us are afraid of our kids being harmed, right? This seems to be the word of the day. So we bubble wrap them, right? Any way that we can, because we don't want them to hurt and we don't want them to risk anything, I want to let you guys know something. There is no New Testament prayer that speaks about safety and comfort. Think about that for just a second. And yet our prayers are constantly filled with safety and comfort. Help us to be safe as we go here. Help our kids to be safe when we go there. Help our kids to be safe, to be safe, to be safe. There's nothing wrong with praying a safe prayer, but that's not primarily what the gospel is about. Jesus doesn't promise safety. Yet he is probably, it is probably the number one thing that we pray. Jesus says, hang in there, have courage, persevere, trust me, take a risk. God never promised us to be safe. 
Following Jesus is not supposed to be safe. It's supposed to be significant. And there's a big difference between the two. Some of you fear following Jesus because of what you would have to let go of. And you really fear that whatever it is that you're holding on to is so important in your life, even if it's dysfunctional, than to go into something that's uncomfortable or new when it comes to a relationship with Jesus. So when it comes to fear, I want to tell you this. Don't miss this. You might be one courageous decision away from something significantly changing in your life. When it comes to fear, you might be one courageous decision away. You have been living in, you've been guided by, you have been you know, held back from the thing that Jesus wants you to take a step in and he's waiting for you to make that one courageous decision and it's gonna affect everything. What is that for you? So the first thing we learn from Smyrna that can hinder our faith or hinder us from growing in our faith is fear. The second thing that holds us back from following Jesus in general is found in Pergamum, and that is compromise. Compromise. Uh, nothing conquers and devours God's people faster than compromise, and we see that in this church on a regular basis. Easy to stand up for God out there, but it was much harder inside the church. And there are three ways that most of us can find the ability, or I should say, the way that we give in to compromise. Number one, we don't realize we are compromising. <laughs> Now, that would be biblical illiteracy. We don't know what God actually has to say about the issue. Or we've been told by other people who would rather just say, nah, it's not really a big deal. God doesn't really mean when he says that. When it comes to whatever it is in our culture and our lives, we're conforming more and more into the image of the culture instead of the image of Christ. And we don't know the difference. And so we don't even realize that we're compromising at the time. And it's easy to get caught up into that. And so we need to know what God's word actually has to say because it's actually good for us. And it's the right way, even when the culture is saying the opposite. Number two, we don't have other people in our lives who love us enough to correct us. I don't know if you've heard about uh, only surrounding yourself with yes people. We have a tendency to do that. And in fact, uh, all of our social media algorithms are created as such. You know that, right? Just do a little study. We've said this two or three times on the stage. Your social media algorithm is intended to only surround you with people who think like you do. And so when you start clicking on things and ads and political things and moral things, then all of a sudden you start aligning, you start only seeing those posts. And then you start going, well, why is the world so much crazier than what I'm seeing? Everybody on my posts seem to see, see the same way, the same thing the way I do. And it's because, you know, that that's because the computers have got you fooled. Do you have other people besides yes people in your life that love you enough and that you love them enough to bring loving correction in each other's life because we love each other in Jesus's name. Who do you have in your life that you're willing to say, please, if you see something in my life, correct me. I got a group of guys you know, I meet with every single Tuesday and they have 100% permission. I've got our elders who do that and I've got three other guys. I try to get as many as I can to say, look, I trust you to know me well enough to recognize that there are things that I might not see in myself that you're gonna see first because we all have something called blind spots and we can be compromising very easily and not even realize it, which leads us to number three. We compromise, honestly, because we don't think it's a big deal to God. We don't think it's a big deal to God. And Jesus makes it clear that that's not true. What are some of those things today? You know, we've already had a series on it, but how about sexual sin? You know, even Christians living with other Christians before marriage, just because it's more convenient. Uh, people who get divorced, Christian people, again, I'm only talking about Christian people at this point, because we fall out of love, not because of adultery or something else along those lines. Pornography, 
just to name a few. It's not that big a deal. Everybody does it. No, it hinders your relationship with God and relationship with other people. How about the pursuit of the almighty dollar, irregardless of ethics, right? The place that you work, everybody fudges just a little bit in your place of business or real estate or banking, you know, wherever it may be. They just fudge just a little bit. And so if everybody's doing it, then what's the big deal? It is a big deal. One of the things that I want to ask, you know, if you're a follower of Christ, do other people in your, in your business or workplace, do they know it? And if they were to find out, would they be shocked? That would say something. They'd be like, you? You're a Christian? You know, hopefully they're shocked for good reasons. Now, you know, what about other th- ways that we compromise? When we put idols in front that we think that God cares, God understands. How about it's no big deal missing church regularly for family time? God knows. I only have family for a short period of time. Really? Or do we want to teach our kids that following Jesus is the most important thing in our lives? What about kids' activities, sports, and events as the highest priority in our households? And I get it. I've got kids that have gone through AAU stuff, you know, as well. And I understand the demands and the pressures. And I got a daughter who's in volleyball and AAU. And we say, nope, how do we make sure that God is first in and through all of this? What about regular outings and family trips as the priority? Well, I just want to do this while the kids are in the house. How about wanting to model and teach about Jesus while they're still in the house? These are the important things. Let me be clear. We find ways, whatever we prioritize, our kids know. They know what we value. They know what matters to us. And is Jesus the priority? Other things that socially are acceptable. How about drinking? Uh, Somebody told me about something called the wine mom's culture. I don't know what that means. But some of you moms will know that as well. It's totally okay to drink. There's nothing wrong with getting drink, drinking, but what, getting drunk and high, yes, that's a compromise. The achievement factor, right? We've talked about this before. I'm providing for my family at the neglect of my family. And we can find ourselves doing that. Materialism, consumerism, is it ever enough in our culture? What about gluttony? Man, how many times have I turned to the refrigerator when I'm not hungry? You know, that's the basic definition of gluttony when we turn and said to God. Uh, safety, we've talked about that. Get away from the bad people in life. We have to surround ourselves and, and, and pull ourselves away from the culture instead of being a light into it. So many ways. So here's a question. Where are you compromising your faith and your trust in Jesus? Where is that? See, once we realize what fear or compromise is hindering us, then Jesus gives us a response He goes, once you know what it is, then I will reveal it to you. Let God, not Dan, reveal it to you. Here's what he says. Repent of your sin. This is what he says in Revelation 2.16. And repentance isn't just saying, God, I know what it is. No, that's called confession. Repentance is saying, I'm not going to do that, or I'm not going to try to do that, or I'm going to lean upon you and other people to help me on the journey to not doing that anymore. And so we've talked about two ways that hinders or stops our faith from Smyrna and Pergamum. And that's fear and compromise. But I want to end on some good news. (laughs) Instead of like, man, this sucks, man. I just got beat up today. So let's end on some good news. From this passage, Jesus has some amazing words for those who turn to him and stay true. And I skip this to this point for this reason. At the end of Pergamum, he says this in verse 17, to everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. What's he talking about? Man is what he provided the nation of Israel every single day that he was going to be the provider on their way from Egypt to the promised land. And then the nation of Israel took one of the pieces of manna, placed it in the Ark of the Covenant. There was going to be a reminder that one day we would feast with God in all eternity. 
And what he's saying is that a deep relationship with God and others is one of the rewards that I'm going to give you in what's called the messianic banquet that's to lay ahead. And so don't eat food sacrificed to idols is what he's saying to them specifically. And he's saying, focus on the greatest meal you're going to have in all eternity. Delay gratification for something that's going to be far greater as you hold on to what is right and is true. He tells them again that they are rich, you know, but they're not going to see or experience that until they walk, what, the streets of gold, a house or mansion, you know, a crown of life, and they're going to get a new identity, a new identity. Here's what's really cool. In verse 17, it says, I will give each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. See, in that day and age, in the court of law, when someone was pronounced innocent or guilty, they would be handed a stone. And a black stone meant that you were guilty, and a white stone meant that you were innocent. You were free to go. And then Jesus says that you're going to get one of these names on it. Now, the, also, I want to tell you, in Roman culture, giving victors in athletic games, they also received a white stone with their name written on it, saying, you have run the race, you have finished, and you win the prize. And there was their name that was engraved on a stone in addition to the wreath that actually be given them upon their victory. And so what Jesus is saying to them is like, hey, you hold on. You are going to be set free. You're going to be victorious. And I'm going to give you a new name. Now, here's what's crazy. We all have names, but we're going to get to heaven and we're going to get this white stone and it's going to have a new name. The name that we were always meant to have, the name that we have in Jesus. He always changes people and he changes names. We don't have time to go into how he does that in the New Testament, especially. And we're going to look at it and we're going to be like, of course, that was my name. Somebody else is going to look at it and be like, I don't get it. You're like, you shouldn't get it. And that's what he's saying. Nobody else is going to understand, but that's how well Jesus knows and loves you. And he has these rewards waiting for you. If we will stay true to who he has called us to be, not perfectly because his grace covers it all. And we can hold true to the end. So when it comes to fear and compromise, what is one courageous decision that you can make today, just one, to help or to start your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the encouragement, the challenge, the information that you give us from these two churches. And I just pray, Father, you would be with us. I pray that we would not walk out of here feeling shame. Father, we've talked a lot of truth today that can hit into our hearts and minds, but I pray that truth would turn into hope perseverance, courage, openness, vulnerability, and transparency before you and before others. Help us to live out what it means to be real in our relationship with you and others. I pray for everyone in this room, everyone who's watching online, that we might walk out victorious, knowing that a white stone awaits as we hold ourselves true to the one who gave it all. And Father, as it gets harder and harder to live for you outside these walls, I pray for the courage of those in this room and those online to band together as the church and to live for you regardless of the consequence and to do it in a way that draws people into your presence. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.